Hey everybody and welcome to the 8th episode of DCI. I'm your host, Jonathan Miley. In this episode, Brian and I sat down and talked with Guido Hinkel, who is the lead developer of a new game called Deathfire. It's a first-person, old-school RPG. Uh, now, you may recognize his name. Guido has actually worked on a lot of old-school RPGs. He worked on Realms of Arcania, Neverwinter Nights, Planescape Torment. He's worked on quite a few things. So we had a great time talking to him, not only about Deathfire, but some of the older games that he's worked on. If you want to find out more about DarkStation, you can do that at DarkStation.com. If you want to follow us on Twitter, you can do that at DarkStation underscore com. To subscribe to us, we're on iTunes. We are the DarkCast. And if you want to send us an email, our email address is podcast at DarkStation.com. If you want to find out more information about Guido or his new game, Deathfire, then you can check out the links in the show notes below this episode. Thanks for listening. Now on with the show. So before we get started uh, with all the kind of games talk, if you could tell us a little bit about um, who you are, uh, I'm, I'm sure a lot of people listening might have, might know your name, but personally, I'm not a big uh, PC RPG guy. So if you could kind of talk about some of the games that you've worked on, um, talk about you know what you do uh, in the video games industry. I mean, I started over 30 years ago, and, you know, when programming and making games was really a small job where you had a small breadbox kind of computer and you just started hacking into it. Mm-hmm. Most of the games at the time were done by one or two people, so it's very different from how you develop games today. And I started making text adventure games back then. That was in 83 or 1983 or so. And I was making text adventures, had fun with them, I programmed them, then I started adding some graphics to it, and eventually a friend of mine joined me in that, and he was a huge role-playing fan, a pen and paper fan, and he was like, you know, text adventures are fun and all, but wouldn't it be even cooler if we turned it into a real role-playing game? So at that point, we wrote our first full-fledged role-playing game, which was called Spirit of Adventure which was uh, released, I think, around 19, I would say, 88 or so, something around that time, maybe 89. Okay. And that game was comparable to Bart's Tale at the time. So it was a completely turn-based game with a 3D, with a, well, you wouldn't really call it 3D today, but, you know, with sort of a three-dimensional representation of the cities and the dungeons that you walk through and all and it had uh, like an, an involved story. And for us, that was the first foray into role-playing games on computers. The funny thing at the time was that the game caught a lot of attention. Uh, a lot of people approached me afterwards. Um, among them, a publisher from Germany who had the license for uh, a German pen and paper role-playing game. Mm-hmm. And it was called Das Schwarze Auge. And asked us if we would be interested in doing a game based on that license. 
So Hans-Jürgen Brendle, which was my partner at the time, and I decided to do that, and we formed a new company, which was called Attic Entertainment Software. We brought in another uh, friend from school at the time, and the three of us started out making that role-playing game, which turned out to be Realms of Arcania, The Blade of Destiny. And that game just was a huge hit for, for everybody involved. Mm-hmm. Yes, it was a hardcore game, a hardcore role-playing game, like none had been done before. It was really down to the smallest minutiae that you could imagine. And people just were totally flabbergasted how it was possible to translate a pen and paper game so faithfully onto the computer. Mm-hmm. And that sort of opened the road for us for many other things. Uh, along the way, while we were doing this, we did a whole bunch of other games, more text adventure games, action games, shoot 'em ups and all that. So we've been busy you know, ever since 1985 and in 1991 when Rounds of Arcania broke, uh, it completely changed the way we worked because we realized we needed a new, a bigger team and all that. And, you know, the rest is almost history. So Rounds of Arcania turned into a trilogy. We created two more sequels to it, which were Star Trail and Shadows Over Riva. And once we completed Shadows Over Riva, I was a little burned out on the whole subject. And mm-hmm. I decided I needed a change in tapestry. And I left Germany at the time and moved to the U.S. And uh, while I was looking for a job, I ended up working for Interplay. Uh, and Interplay had a really cool project in the making, you know, on, on the, in the very, very early stages. And that was based on the Planescape universe, which is mm-hmm. part of the Advanced Dungeons & Dragons thing. And because of my background with working with, with licenses, with pen and paper licenses before, you know, they sort of suggested if I would be interested in that game. And I looked at it, I read the early design uh, story outline that they had prepared, and I was like, that is the coolest thing ever. I want to be part of this. And I signed on to that project as the, as the producer. Uh, I left Interplay after or shortly before Planescape was released and sort of parted ways with the industry because I was a little fed up with how the whole industry evolved at the time. So I didn't do games for a while and then returned to making mobile games because that reminded me so much of the 80s when you had small teams and really small games, you know, that were fun to make and you could do them by yourself and you didn't need huge teams. So for a couple of years, I did mobile games. But uh, more recently, you know, I sort of got the the bug again that it said, you know, a really full-blown role-playing game would be fun. So here we are. I'm working on a new role-playing game and I'm trying to see where we can go with it. Awesome. So that is essentially, you know, the career game-wise that I've been following. Mm-hmm. Um, the, I've also been working with Squaresoft, you know, the Final Fantasy guys. Because mm-hmm. uh, at one point I was associated with a company, with a startup company, and we wanted to make an MMO. And we pitched the idea to a whole lot of uh, publishers at the time. And Squaresoft actually signed us up at the time, which was really curious because they had never worked with an external team before, especially not in the U.S., so that was quite an experience, too. But unfortunately, six months into development, they hit some rough patches, mostly because of the movie they had made at the time. Mm-hmm. And they sort of canceled the project overnight, which left us stranded. And that was very unfortunate. Yeah. But hey, what can you do? <laughs> Absolutely. So it's part, you know, it's part of the job, it's part of the climate and all that. But of course, it was very disappointing at the time. But we tried to shop the project around with other publishers, but unfortunately we couldn't even, uh, you know, we couldn't land it anywhere else because the scope was so huge at the time that nobody really wanted to tackle it. 
Mm. You know, you know, you know, Square stuff. If they do something, it's going to be huge. Sure. And it was the same with the project that we were working on. You know, and once we put the, the documentation in front of people at the publishers and mentioned the amount of money that were involved there, they were like, "No, there's no way we can do that." <laughs> Mention money, people tighten right up for some reason. <laughs> uh, especially, you know, when you get into those rounds like Squaresoft, they're like, "Oh no, 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 we've never done a title like that before." I was like, "Well, it's too bad." But it was right. fun. It was a great ride. Um, so besides working with the uh, the smaller teams you mentioned when you went into the, the mobile space, kind of reminding you about um, earlier in your career uh, in making video games, uh, w- was there anything inherent to the mobile space that kind of drew you um, there uh, well, about like what you could do with that platform? Yeah, the thing is... Uh, when I started programming, or I've, I've always been a programmer at heart, and I have, I'm an assembly guy. I love to work in, with mnemonics, with assembly code and all that. And the beauty of the mobile devices was that in order to get per, performance out of those little devices, you had to go down to the wire. So I found myself counting clock cycles again and all these cool things, and I loved it. You know, that is really what I love doing. And that was a huge part of the appeal because all of a sudden, and it all started on on the pocket PC. Uh, so here you are, you have this tiny little device with a VGA screen, full color and all that, and a processor that if it's handled properly, really has the power to push serious data. And that was just enormous for me. It was like, you know, I was felt like a kid in a toy box. And I was like, this is the greatest thing ever. I just want to do this, you know. And that was that. At the time, of course, we could not foresee the kind of impact those mobile devices would have on the future, you know, how they would pick up and how people would just turn them into everyday gadgets that, you know, the, the do-it-all kind of smartphones. Uh, because in the early stages, you, ha- you, you rarely thought about that. You just had a cool little display, some processing power, and said, yeah, let's push some sprites. Mm-hmm. But the interesting thing is, you know, as those devices became more popular and, you know, permeated the market more, the industry, again, changed completely. And it got to the point that you couldn't really make money in the mobile space anymore. And that was when I pulled out and was like, you know, I'm not doing this. I'm doing this for fun, but I got to make a living, too. So, you sure, know, there's sure. no room for me. And that's when I stopped making mobile games, really. Okay. Uh, well, you are currently at uh, G3 Studios, correctly? Yes, correct. which, is, um, I, which is my company. That's uh, your company? Okay, so uh, I was going to ask you how long you had been there, but... Um... <laughs> yeah, that is the company I founded in order to make the mobile games at the time, you know, because when I sat down and said, I'm, I'm having my first game ready, I need to publish it, okay, I need some kind of a publishing umbrella for it. And G3 Studios was the, the label that I chose and the company that I set up for that. Okay. And ever since it has become sort of the umbrella for all the digital work that I'm doing, because I've always been also been publishing books and writing books over the last couple of years, mm-hmm. so I have a publishing arm, a book publishing arm within Cheese Studios that handles that side. So it's all sort of mixed together. Sure. And I like to think of Cheese Studios sort of like a digital media company. Okay. Um, yeah, that uh, that's actually one of the the things that I I think more companies should do because it, it always seems like something's lost in the translation. This is more with the the transmedia type of movement that we've seen in the last, I don't know, decade and a half where you have books based on games and whatnot, that it would make a lot more sense if all that was under one roof instead of contracting people outside. Especially uh, because the technologies come together so much mm-hmm. more. You know? I mean, the process to create an ebook today is almost the same like creating a website. So you mm-hmm. know, 
web design, you know how to make an ebook in, in general, and vice versa. And if you know how to do proper web design, then you know how to program, which takes you further into the game development part and all that. So it's really all interconnected. And to me, there's no no differentiation. I'm looking at it as like what needs to be done, how do we do it, and you know, do we have synergies? Mm -hmm. Um. So. Uh, you mentioned that you've been writing um, some books lately. You've also been a, a book editor, and that's that's one of the services that you kind of provide through the company. Uh, can you tell us a little bit about that, the, the kind of books that you write, um, well, that was, sort of thing? Yeah, the thing was when I finished the mobile stuff and I said, okay, I'm not going to do mobile games anymore. I needed a new toy. I needed something to keep myself occupied because that's the big thing for me. I always need something that keeps my mind going and all and I sat down, and I was like, okay, what am I going to do now? And I threw around a few ideas, and then I was like, you know, I always wanted to write, but I never really dared to. I never thought I could really do it. I tried once or twice, you know, many, many years ago, and it was horrible. I could not get even a paragraph completed. <laughs> so I thought, you know, what could I do writing-wise that I could manage? And I remembered the dime novels that I grew up on, you know, which are like little, small 64-page thin, softbound, uh, magazine-style booklets. Uh, and I looked at it, and it's like, that has always been fun to read. So I, maybe I could try writing one of those. And I created this, you know, I invented this universe and this hero, Jason Dart, which is a ghost hunter in Victorian London or in Victorian England. I said, okay, let me write a story just to see if I can do it, if I have it in me to write a coherent story. And I sat down, wrote the thing, and read it afterwards, and I was like, you know, it's not great, but it's not half bad either. So maybe with a little bit of polish, I could actually do this. And it was a lot of fun to do, especially because in the years before, while I was working on games, you never write in a narrative flow, really. When you take role-playing games, for example, or text adventure games, there's a lot of writing involved, but all you do is... Uh, you go through different scenarios and you create, you think up all the possible answers a player could give and then you find possible answers to that. So you're never working with a narrative flow from beginning to end. You know, it's more piecework that you do. Mm -hmm. So writing a story from beginning to end was a completely new experience for me. And I loved it. You know, it's like I can finally control what I want to say, when I want to say it and how I say it. So I had so much fun doing that book that I sat down and wrote another one right after that. Mm hmm. Once I had three of them together, I said, okay, maybe I should start publishing them. And I started looking around at publishing deals in the book industry. And it's ridiculous. You know, it's, the industry is so broken at this point that you don't even have to try, really. But at the same time, the Kindle started to appear. Amazon put it up. It was still $250 at the time. Crazy price point. But I looked at it and it's like, you know, I can see the future happening there. Because uh, instead of carrying around heavy books, I can see people downloading books, reading them on the Kindle or perhaps on phones and stuff. So I pushed a lot of energy into the ebook market and, you know, familiarized myself with the technologies and started formatting the books and publishing them on the Kindle. And what do you know? You know, just as soon as I published them, the Kindle just took off like there's no tomorrow. And I mean, again, the rest is history. You know how huge the Kindle market is these days. And there's a huge market out there. Uh, and I kept writing more stories. So at this point, I have 11 books out there, but uh, all in the Chase and Dark series. But unfortunately, again, it was one of those things where I couldn't really make money because uh, the market had developed to such a point that there's such a glut of content there. And it's hard for, uh, for certain titles to really bubble to the surface. 
mm-hmm. that I really had to consider my options. Like, you know, I can keep doing that and barely make a living of it, or I could just focus on something else. And again, that was a point where I said, maybe I should start stop writing. It was fun while it lasted, but maybe I should do something else. And, you know, again, in the back of my head, computer games started to raise their head and role-playing games. And I was like, ha, ah, yeah, after all these years, it would be fun to do one again. And here we are. Okay. Now, um, has writing these books kind of changed how you're approaching your newest game? Yes. So can you enough, talk about that? Yes. It has. You know, it's just like, I, I think now that I'm working on a new game in Deathfire, I'm thinking of it more from a narrative standpoint than I ever did before. When we do it, the, the the realms of Arcania games, and when we did all the text adventure games and all that, it was more like an, how should I say, it was more like a, a situational approach that we said, okay, we have the situation, what do we do with it? And then you create all sort of content around it, and from that you move on to the next location or to the next setting or scenario and said, okay, what can we do with this? So it was more of an approach from the inside out. Uh, what I'm trying to do now is more or less the opposite, that I say I have this big story that I want to tell and I'm cutting it into pieces and I'm trying to analyze how can I do it, how can I keep my narrative flow going the way I want to, the way I would tell it as a story mm-hmm. uh, and pack that into a game. And that gives you a completely different approach to designing the game and writing for the game. Right, absolutely. Um so what one of the other things that you have in addition to you know the books and the the video games you've also got a blog that you've been keeping up with kind of uh documenting some of the the developments of yeah. uh Deathfire and also other games that you've worked on. Uh is that just a space for you to kind of you know put information out there for uh you know gamers to kind of come in and read about how the game's doing or is there any other kind of stuff that you are working with that for? It is mostly really just for me to to share my my uh, my thoughts and my experience. Uh, that was the initial approach to it. I mean, it started. I started the blog with the ebook thing because I saw there's a lot of issues out there, a lot of misunderstanding problems people have. Authors don't know how to do it and all that. So I started blogging about how to do things and how I see certain developments in the market with my background in the computer games industry because there were a lot of parallels there. And from when we started working on Deathfire, you know, it was for me the natural extension. And I said, you know, I want to blog about that as well because, you know, it's the first time I work with Unity. So there are like the, there's this, ooh, it's all new, it's all fresh, it's all pink kind of experience. And I wanted to share that as well. It's like, you know, yeah, this is cool and this is why I like it and this is really awesome and this is how I want to do it. And I just wanted to share the process and all that. At the same time, you know, because I've been working on so many traditional, no, I shouldn't say traditional titles. I've been working on so many titles in the traditional publishing route, I should say, uh, where you never get to share the actual development process. It's an exciting time for me because I can go out there, I can talk about everything. Mm-hmm. While I was at Interplay or while we were working at Attic and all that, we had to keep a lid on a lot of things all the time, whether it's because of corporate decrees, whether it's because you just don't want to give it away ahead of time. Uh, We just couldn't tell people about how excited we are about the cool things we plan on making and and all that. And I think today with blogs and with the internet and with the fact that I'm an independent developer, Mm -hmm. I have freedom to really do whatever I want to do and I want to really make use of that opportunity. 
And I think it's, uh, it's good to be king. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> uh, I, it's part of the reason why I have always tried to be independent. You know, even when we had Attic Entertainment Software, it was an independent uh, developer and publisher. We were co almost completely self-sufficient. We didn't have investors. We didn't owe anybody money. We developed the titles, we published them, and then we shipped them out to distributors. So we had full control over everything we did. And I love that kind of control because I've been ripped off many, many times in the industry. And it's like, hey, I'm not going to let that happen again. And so when when we started working on Deathfire, again, it was that one thing where it's like, you know, I have the control, I have the power, and I want to share it with people because it is so hard to really understand what it takes to make games. Um, and I think people out there are really curious. Gamers, you know, I see it in many posts. Uh, gamers often have a completely skewed view as to how games are being made, how decisions are being made, how this stuff is all coming together. And, many people and, and just how much things cost, yeah, and especially with uh, with Kickstarter and, and that coming to the forefront yeah. and people being more involved in actually funding things, yeah. that that's, that's a great conversation to have. Absolutely. And, and also, you have to be careful with these things because people have sort of uh, oftentimes a wrong understanding. They assume this is how things work, and then there's this education going on where you have to tell them, you know, this is not really how it worked, that it's just how we presented it to the outside world through the media in the past. Because we were very controlling, you know, the publisher would say, okay, this is the date when we start talking about the game. At that point, of course, you had a playable demo and all that because you were showing it to the journalists and all that. It's very different nowadays, you know, because I started talking about the game almost the day we started working on it. At that point, a lot of that stuff is just ideas. So you're talking about ideas, and you need to relay that to people, that it means this is an idea. This does not necessarily mean that's how the game is going to work out in the end, because along the road, we will have many, many decisions to make, and we will counteract, you know, on certain of the decisions and the philosophies we had before, because they just don't work out. But it's part of the process. And I think that's the really important part, to tell people and to teach people this is the process. It's not that you're not a flaw. It's not you know that we don't know what we're doing or so. It is really an iterative process, and this is how games are being made. And it's always been like that. We just didn't talk about it in the past. Mm -hmm. So you've, you've got uh, you've got tons of uh, like just excellent titles under your belt and being in the industry for so long. Even with the process kind of this open, um, do you still find like those aspects being questioned? Like yes. even even when you have this, you know, whole like, hey guys, trust me, I kind of know what's going on. Yeah, and saying trust me is, uh, I found, is the wrong thing to do, really. That's <laughs> <laughs> not the right response. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, the the thing is, you know, there of course there are certain things that I do not talk about because I know without the proper background, without the with all the information and knowledge that you have to know to properly put the information in the right frame work, you know. You're just misleading or or opening yourself up to misinterpretation, mm -hmm. and I try to avoid that. I mean, you never, you can never fully avoid it, but I'm trying as best as I can while tr also trying to be open uh, with everything we do. But it is, you know, it's a slippery slope. You have to be very careful what you say, of co of course. And when you say something, you need to make sure people understand. You know, this is not final code. This is not a final edict. It just means this is the direction we're heading into. This is what we're trying to do. The final result may still be different. You know, even if you if if I put a graphic up of let's say an item or so on the website on the blog, and people say, oh, this sucks. What do you need this item for? It's like, hey, you know, 
This item may not even be in the game. It's just an example to show you what it could look like. Mm -hmm. um, so, you know, uh, clarity from kind of the developer standpoint towards the consumer end has something that seems to have become a lot more popular over the past yeah. really year and a half or so since yeah. uh, really kind of with the rise of Kickstarter. Yeah. Um, it doesn't surprise me, you know, because yeah. we are very excited, all of us, all game developers, by, by definition. We are always very excited about what we're doing. Every day we have little bits of code and stuff, and all of a sudden something falls into place and it works, and you go like, wow, this is so awesome, you know, and you just want to go out and tell the world about it. It's part of being a game developer, you know, these highs, it's almost like a sugar rush that you have these moments and you go like, wow, this is the coolest thing. I got to show people, you know, and then you, you write your blog or you tweet about it and all that. And, you know, now that it has become more popular, you see so much more of it because everybody in the games industry is so hyped up about what they do. Has, has there been an instance um, with, you know, kind of with the hype and with the, uh, like, you know, with being out there where you've been really excited about something, you've put it out there and it's been met with less than your excitement? Yes. Yes. <laughs> is, is that is that is that kind of instant feedback? Is that really weird, especially coming from you know the days where everything was under lock and key? I wouldn't say it's weird. It's just very different. It takes some getting used to, yeah. Because yeah, in the past, oftentimes we would make decisions behind closed doors. You develop the title, and then at one point you reveal. You know, you have your big reveal and all that, and then people have to accept the fact that you made those decisions. Mm -hmm. uh, having that instant feedback now. It is helpful, but at the same time, it can be very distracting sometimes because now you don't have only the voices of the team members or the management of the company. All of a sudden, you have thousands of fans chiming in. And just by, by definition, that means you have a thousand voices. Mm -hmm. So you need to be able to channel those voices and filter out all the noise so that you really get to the core of it and say, okay, what did all these voices say that is really relevant? And then you have to work from there. And that uh, takes not only a lot of time, it also takes a lot of patience and mm -hmm. restraint, you know, because, yes, you know, it's very easy to get sidetracked with all the comments many times that you say, oh, maybe I should think about that and maybe I should think about that. It's like, no, you shouldn't, you know, because I have a vision in my mind and my goal is to bring that vision to reality while at the same time trying to create something that people enjoy. Right, and I imagine a lot of that sifting through the, the different voices is actually trying to figure out the, the question behind the question because it seems like a lot of people like to criticize very surface-level things and sometimes you know it can get easy to get caught up in why they didn't like that yeah. until you realize that maybe there's a, a deeper thing that you know if they just understood this particular aspect better, they would like that part of the yeah. game or something like yeah. that. Yeah. yeah, I think that is often the case, or most of the time I found that it's just a, a lack of information mm -hmm. that, you know, you put something out and people jump to certain conclusions and for some reason, inevitably, they always seem to jump to the wrong conclusions. <laughs> but, you know, it's, it's like I said, it's a lack of information and it's probably oftentimes a, a mistake, a fault of, on our behalf because we didn't provide the necessary information. But at the same time, it's hard for me sometimes to see the tree, uh, the forest for the woods, uh, no, the, whatever. <laughs> right. Uh, it's hard for me because, you know, I have so much information about the game in my mind. I'm, I'm just taking it for granted that everybody knows this is this, this is that, and all that. That sometimes it's a little hard for me to really 
take that big step backward and say, okay, what additional information do I have to relay in order to make this fully understandable? Uh, and the second problem with it is also that many times it is information that I do not want to have out in the public at that point yet, which means I make a decision based on certain other decisions that we have made, but we haven't talked about yet. So I leave certain things in the dark because it's uh, something I want to talk about in the future or because it's not nailed down yet. And so, so it's always very, very tricky to juggle all the bits of information and to make sure people know what we're talking about and which direction we're going into without giving everything away. And by that, oh, it's almost committing to it. Because that's the huge thing. Once you put it out in the public, it's almost like a committal that you, you you will do this and this is what it will be like and all that. When in fact, it's really a process where you look at it, maybe change it, look at it and decide it doesn't work, change it, look at it and all that. And, you know, it's, 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 it's a tricky situation. People do tend to remember ideas more like promises. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Absolutely, yeah. At, uh, at the day of this recording, um, Gamescom is going on right now, and a new Fable game was actually announced. And I was I was reading about it today, and I was seeing in the comments how basically everyone was complaining that the first Fable didn't live up to the whole acorn planting in the woods and the tree growing and you being able to carve your name in it and whatever. And it's like, seriously, that was over a decade ago. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> I think it's time People to move on. People have real long memories for that stuff. <laughs> they do. <laughs> they do indeed. Um. So G uh, G three Studios itself. Um. How many people do you actually have kind of involved in Deathfire? Well, in Deathfire right now we have a team of five people involved in it. Uh, it's myself and uh, a bunch of graphic artists mostly. So we have artists working on different parts. Uh, some people working on the the user interface. Some people are 3D modelers who create, starting create models for the game and all. Then we have some environmental artists and all. We have somebody working on all the character portraits and stuff. So it's a nice, it's a nice little small little group, and it's people that I've worked with before, so I'm familiar with with them and their capabilities. You know the level of work they can do and and all that. And I'm really happy with that. And where are you guys actually located out of? Uh, all over the world, uh, but okay. <laughs> I'm in Southern California, but uh, many of the guys I'm working with are actually out in Germany. Hmm. Oh, okay. Oh, but that that has actually worked to our favor in the past because of the time difference. So if I finish something at night, I can check it into the server and all that, and that is about the time when they start getting to work. So if I need need assets or anything, they have all day almost to prepare these assets for me. So when I get back to work the next morning. You know, it's all there, and I can immediately grab it and continue working. So from that standpoint, it's really cool. Kind of just keeps the ball rolling. Yeah, yeah. Because you have somebody working on the game pretty much 24 hours a day. Wow, that, that is pretty cool. Yeah, it is. Um, I mean, you've got, you yourself have multiple titles that you've worked on before that a lot of people have heard of. Um, what yes. has, has G3 kind of as a as a group, have, have you guys had anything before Deathfire? I know no. you mentioned creating it for a mobile market. No, the, the, the group I'm working with right now, uh, we haven't worked together since the Attic Entertainment days because, like I said, I haven't worked with these people before and, you know, it's one of those things where it just felt right from the get-go. It's like, yeah, we're, we're comfortable with each other and we go. So this is the first project that we in this constellation are making together. All the other G3 Studio titles uh, I have either done mostly by myself 
or uh, with some other artists. Okay. So it's a bit of a trial by fire right now that we say we do this and yeah, I mean we can do it, we've done it before, you know. I mean, Andre, for example, one of the artists, he was part of the team that did uh, Shadows Over Riva with me. Uh, Marion Arnold uh, is an artist and he was working with Attic Entertainment Software and he was one of the artists on the Divine Divinity series. So, like I say, there's a history with all of these people that I have and we're very, very comfortable working with each other. That's excellent. That certainly, it certainly helps with the, uh, uh, you know, kind of being separated too. If you know you can trust the guys, you know, you don't have to be there to kind of constantly look over their shoulder and that they'll be able to, to do what you need. Absolutely. I need self-starters, you know, because I'm a complete self-starter myself and I need people I can rely on and I know when they know there's something that needs to be done, that it gets done and I don't have to remind them all the time, can you do this and can you do that and when am I going to get that? I don't like that kind of management and all that. That's part of the reason why I despise my job as a producer. It's like, no, this is not me. I don't like that. I'm hands-on, you know, and I want to do this stuff. So the more time I have doing stuff as opposed to managing other people and managing stuff and their workload and all that, the happier I am. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Um, now, in regards to Deathfire, I, I think there's a very important question that we haven't asked yet. It's actually two-parter. Um, mm-hmm. Is there fire and does it do death? <laughs> <laughs> Deathfire is actually the title of a spell in the game. And um, the, the thing is, we did a focus group a little while ago about the title for the game because we got a number of complaints where people say, Deathfire is just such a stupid title, you should change the name of the game. <laughs> and, you know, I okay. mean... Well, All right. <laughs> yeah, I you mean, know, you know, the, the, the creative process is kind of selfish in itself, so it's yeah, like, hey, guys, F you. It's... <laughs> you know, when we started working on that, it just popped up because we had this spell, you know, there's this story of, an, uh, of, of a nethermancer who has uncovered this ancient banished spell and he is suddenly using it and that spell is called Deathfire which sort of rips the soul out of people and turns them into zombies essentially oh. and uh, we needed a, a name for that spell and it was like yeah the Deathfire, Deathfire you know the fire of the undead in their eyes and all that so we just used it as a, as a project title in the beginning and it sort of grew on us but yeah, like I said, a lot of people complained about it. They said that is a stupid name. You definitely need to change that. So we took that that those comments to heart and said, okay, here's what we're gonna do. We come up with a list of titles and ideas, naming ideas and all that, and we'll just put it in front of people and say, you know, tell us what you think of these and give us your associations. And we created the focus group and did that, and it was really, really, really interesting what came out of it. And I just finished a blog post about that because we're about to reveal the final name for the game next week. Uh, oh, so it, could not, it might not be Deathfire. It might not be Deathfire. Oh. Uh, and it is a direct result of that focus group. And it was, it was, it was so bizarre. It was almost uh, otherworldly to watch the comments come in and all that. You know, we've been glued. The day we did that, it was sort of a survey. And uh-huh. we were glued to the screen as the results came in to read what people had to say about it. And it was so fascinating, you know. I would constantly hit the refresh button. It's almost like Kickstarter, you know. Is there is there an office pool as <laughs> yeah, far as you guys think will win? Huh? Is there is there an office pool going as far as who you guys think will win? <laughs> no, we didn't. It was just more more of a best guess that we said. You know, each of us had their favorites and said, "Let's see what other people think of it." And the result was very very surprising, I have to say. 
And like I say, next week we're going to unveil the final name, so it's going to be fun. And I'm, I'm really curious to see how people will react to it. So we had a bunch of cool titles that we thought were cool, you know, and put it in front of people without any explanation. It just said, okay, what does the name Deathfire mean to you in terms of a game? And we let them write down what they thought this could mean and, you know, how they would envision a game with a title like that. Then we put another title to them. Uh, one was Nethermancer, for example. I said, tell us what you think about this, just the associations in your mind with that name. And we had a couple of other ones, and it was it was crazy. It was really fun <laughs> reading the comments. And then we started rating them. We had all we had ten names, and said rate them from one to ten, and you know give a ten to the one you like the best, and then gradually grade them down to the one you like the least. Uh, cool result, very predictable almost. And then we explained the terms to them, meaning you know some of the names and titles in those game names that we suggested, so that suddenly there was a context for these things, so that suddenly they knew what de what Deathfire means, what a Nethermancer is, and so forth. And then we had them rate those ten titles again. The result was absolutely stunning. And was it not as predictable? No, not at all. Okay. I was totally surprised by the results and all that, as was everybody else. And it was like, okay, cool, interesting, yeah. We will have to adjust to that. And like I said, I mean, I have a blog post ready for it, and it'll go live next week, and people can see how the results changed after all that and how we ended up with our final name. Now, with with something like that, I mean, obviously, like you said, you guys put a lot of work into into the world itself and knowing what Deathfire is behind it. Um, kind of leaving your guys up open to that, uh, kind of to the, the mercy of the crowd, if you will. Mm -hmm. um, you know, you, you said, you know, we'll kind of go with what they say and what that happens. Is, is, it, is it tempting to do that with other things? Or is there, this was just kind of one of those, uh, you know, we could throw this out there for them, let them have this one, the main creative vision is still there. I mean, first I have to say, our idea was never to really go with what people like the most. So it was not that we okay. put it for vote that we say, okay, whatever people vote the most for, that's the title we're going to take. That was not the idea we had behind. We just wanted to gauge uh, the feeling that people had. You know, what did they think of it? What was their comment? What was the feedback? Because we want to create a certain association with the name. When we mention the name and create a logo for it, we want to make sure it reflects what the game is about. Now, the problem is people don't know what the game is about. So when we ask them for the titles, you know, if we would vote for the most popular name, it could completely contradict what the game is really about. Mm -hmm. So we had to be careful and gauge that. But it, the, the responses were what was most interesting for us so that we can see, okay, if we take a title like this, for example, it will go off in the completely wrong direction because this, people this is what people expect from that name. Okay. Exactly. So yeah, that, okay, that was the kind of approach. And then we, uh, we took all that feedback and said, okay, where do we have the overlap? Where does, which title really reflects what the message we want to get across? And we worked from there. So to get back to your question, will we do that with other stuff? Most likely, yeah, because it was such an exciting process. I loved it, you know, and I really love hearing people's comments, especially, you know, when it's in a, in a, in a manner and fashion that is very constructive. Because well, now, it, now, that I got you, now that I got it coming from the point of more just seeing what the public's understanding is of it rather than having them be the decision maker, that's, exactly. that absolutely makes more sense to me. Yeah, yeah. And that was the incentive, and that's what we're going to try to do with certain parts, other parts in the game as well, probably, 
just to get a feel to to see what is the vibe are we hitting the nerve or not and if we're not hitting the nerve what can we do to make it that is the idea that's okay now you said it was an rpg um you got a big long list of rpgs in your past um how how much have you drawn from that and to put into this one and how what's What's kind of different about this that that has you excited moving forward? Well, the main thing for me was to create something that harkens back to the golden era of of computer role-playing games. That's what I like to call it. That is the time, you know, of the realms of Arcania games, which was also the time of the Wizardries and, you know, Lands of Lore and Eye of the Behold or the Goldbox games, D&D, and, you know, all that stuff. To me, that was the highlight of the role-playing genre. And eventually, you know, these games became increasingly harder to sell. That's why the genre almost died out in the mid-90s, and nobody touched it. And uh, in order to to bring it back, many developers sort of looked at the mainstream and said, what can we do to make these games more appealing so they are not so niche? And from that point forward, I felt role-playing games have been watered down a lot. You know, they're more, many of them are more like action games almost. They're almost like first-person shooters just with a sword or with an arrow, bow and arrow. So, oh, especially compared to that era? I mean, you just take yeah. some of those gold box games and yeah, people would n- not even know what to do with themselves yeah. today. Yeah. Yeah, and but but that you know that is the era that I love. That sort of, to me is real computer role playing. And when I thought about making a new role playing game, for me it was cl- immediately clear that I want to do something in that vein. So I went back and said, okay, which are the elements that I really liked about these kinds of games, and what is the stuff that we could really change and improve and make them more contemporary? And obviously, you know, the graphics technology has evolved to the point that we can say, you know, we don't have to make it blocky and all that. We have freedom. <laughs> so, you know, it's an amalgamation of things there. But at the core, the thing that drives the game to me is still the game and not the visual presentation and all that. So we're crafting a role-playing game that is hardcore. You know, you still have a lot of attributes. In Deathfire, for example, you have over 30 attributes for each character that you're playing. And we have a party-based game, so you will play up to six characters in your party and you walk around, you go through dungeons. Dungeon hacking is very important to me and combat is very important. And turn-based combat is very important. And all these are things, you know, that are more traditional than you would find in many of today's games. Uh, And then we put the presentation on top and make it look like it's, yes, it's a game coming out of 2013 or 2014. Well, I have to so say, especially like the the just going back to turn base too, there does seem to be kind of a resurgence to that. Yeah. Um, because, so it's yeah. definitely what some people, what people seem to be looking for, especially with like XCOM and, yeah. uh, and Shadowrun Returns coming out. Yeah, and I you know I think there's there's a reason for that because all those uh, real time role playing games just don't feel like role playing in a sense. You know, the moment you feel like you like it becomes a trigger fest. You know, it's just not role-playing anymore. In role-playing, in my opinion, in computer role-playing, you have to have time to sit back, analyze the situation, and ask yourself, what am I going to do now? And yeah, especially going back to, like, paper and pencil, role-playing yeah. is not a Twitch experience. Exactly. exactly. It's, it's so, very personal. And I want to capture that, you know. I want to make sure that people have that, that there are challenges in there that may take some time that you really have to think about and say, you know, what might be the best solution to do that? Instead of just storming in headlong, you know, and with all colors flying and all this thing. No, that's not what we're trying to do. And 
in terms of drawing from my past experience and all that, I mean, the Rams of Arcania game series are a huge inspiration to me, you know, and that is where I sort of learned the basics of creating uh, detailed role-playing game mechanics. That's where I really picked up all the experience, and that's where we were really strong at at the time. So I'm trying to utilize all that knowledge and all that experience and put it into Deathfire without making it so hardcore that you can't really play it anymore. <laughs> you still want it to be a game. <laughs> I, I, I still want it to be accessible, but I Absolutely. also want it to have depth, you know, that real real love, lovers of uh, traditional role-playing games can take a look at it and say, yeah, this is different, you know, this is more than just something that floats around right now. This is something where I really have to shape my characters and where my character traits and skills and attributes really affect how he 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 how he interacts with the environment, how people respond to him, and you know how the story unfolds in whole and as a whole. I think that's important, and that is part of role playing to me. Um, can you give us any specific examples of some of the things that you at least have in mind, uh, maybe to do with Deathfire or whatever it may be called, uh, <laughs> well, uh, to kind of bring in? some people that may not be used to that style of game? Well, the, the visual presentation is, is created to lure people in, to make it look attractive, obviously, and modern, so that people can say, yeah, this is really cool, you know, it has special effects, visual effects and all that, it looks nice and all that, and also the user interface, we try to keep as, 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 as accessible as possible, but once you drill under the hood, all of a sudden you can open a screen and there's your 34 attributes, you know, and your spells and all that, and you say, hey, there's a lot more than, you know, meets the eye at first. Mm -hmm. uh, the key to me really is make it accessible, make it fun, and keeping the core of it alive. And that's, and that's not easy to do, you know, but we'll try. And I'm confident to do it. Uh, narrative speaking, especially now that you, you've come kind of from having so much control in the books that you've written, um, mm -hmm. coming back to games, um, how much, how much are you, are, is like does player agency play a role in the the narrative of of Deathfire? You know, it's kind of funny because all of a sudden, like I said before, you have a totally different approach to things and you look at things differently. And I look at some of the stuff we did in the past and stuff I designed and wrote earlier, you know, and I was like, you know, it's kind of interesting that you would approach it that way because now I see it from a completely different angle. And I think of it much more in terms of character as opposed to story. Like I said, in, in the old games, when we designed stuff, we had those situations and we created the fluff around it and then moved on to the next one. Now I'm more interested in the characters. How do they behave? What what makes them tick? What rattles them? And so forth. And I'm creating uh, situations around that. A good example for that may be, for example, that all the party members that you have in your group, they will interact with each other. And... You know, like in real life, you will have characters who can't stand each other. They will just get on each other's nerves and they will even, you know, they will really mouth off. And you get a lot of interaction there. And I hope that will create unique situations that the player has to respond to. Because if it gets too critical, he may just have to dismiss one of the party members and say, you know, you don't fit in here. You better go on your own. And you kick him out of the party. Or, you know other situations where you have to resolve the conflict between these people in order to make them work together. Now, are these are these ready-made characters, or, oh. or are all these player-generated? 
No, these are player generated. The player can put together a party of four characters that he generates himself, and then uh -huh. he can add two non-player characters. Uh, he can recruit them during the game. And are these fights going on between the player character ones? Uh, player character and non-player characters, yes. It's, now, this may be getting too far under the hood, so tell me. Um, like, Role-playing is very personal, especially when you're in the beginning and you're creating those characters and you have in mind kind of what they're going for. Yeah. Um, is there kind of like, to prepare for the fact that they could not like each other, mm -hmm. or is there like a... Like character, obviously you've got thirty-four character traits. Is yeah. that stuff that you're shaping at the beginning, as far as through like questions or or maybe like are you just assigning points? Like how does how does like fighter A and mage B how do they come to blows? They are assigned attributes. They're rolled at the beginning when you create your character, and then you have certain points that you can distribute freely between the attributes. Hmm. Um, when you get into the game, the game will take these attributes and create situations based on those. Let's say, for example, if you have a dwarf who is by nature or by his attributes uh, very pessimistic and lamenting all the time, and at the same time you have a character who is uh, the opposite of that, based on his character, uh, on his character traits, you will have a conflict right there. And you can analyze that with the computer. You know, the computer can tell you exactly, these are polar opposites. So, <laughs> okay. <laughs> you know, that's how it works. It's an analysis of the data that you have. Uh, the same thing, open spaces versus claustrophobia. You know, if you have some elf who loves the, the white plains, you know, and you throw him in a dungeon, he will not be comfortable in there. So as a result, we create situations where he has to respond to that or where he will respond to it. It could be something as simple that he just makes a mention and says, you know, I don't like this. I wish we could leave. And that already changes the story because it influences the player because the player now knows one, two, or maybe three of his characters are not too happy in this environment and he may decide, yeah, maybe we should turn around and find something else. Or he may just push through and if he keeps pushing through, the, the characters with the claustrophobia may get increasingly unhappy about what's going on. So it is that kind of usage of the attributes that I plan in the game. That sounds awesome. <laughs> that, that, that absolutely sounds great, especially having kind of some experience with some of the older stuff where I've been coming, you know, uh, I played a couple of those gold box games um, and just thinking of kind of that system in that same spot, um, yeah. just reliving some of those experiences and having, you know, thinking yeah. that a character could like walk out on you yes yeah. that's really kind of cool absolutely absolutely and that will happen and uh it all harkens back to what we did in planescape torment for example where we had a lot of or where we had some interaction between the characters but the difference there was it was much more plot driven than attribute driven because planescape didn't have the kind of uh, attribute depth that we're using in, in death fire but here we really have uh, you know the whole gamut of what personalities are made up of, I think, that we can put to use and then, you know, really create responses and actions and reactions to these kind of environments. And that will be a lot of fun. My hope really is that when when people play Deathfire and when maybe after they play Deathfire, that kind of character interaction and all that is what they will remember the most because it creates a very coherent uh, 
uh, role-playing experience almost as if you're playing with other players you know you're still controlling the guys but they have their own personalities and they make them known I always find this kind of thing interesting um, what kind of currency are you using in a game uh, we're calling something called chits okay C-H-I-T-S and well, yeah, it could be the equivalent to gold or whatever, you know. So. <laughs> oh yeah, gold, gill. I mean, it all. Yeah, yeah, I, yeah. I just I find the, the the nomenclature, the way people go around that kind of stuff, just interesting. Mm. No, we're working with cheats. Okay. And is it uh, is like is there a, uh, is all this adventuring? Is it going over a broad world? Is it just kind of coming out of a hub town? Um, what kind of like environmental experience can can players expect going in there? It's not going to be an epic adventure in terms of that we create a whole world that the player can explore and all that, because one of the key things of Deathfire for me was also to keep it intimate, like with okay. the characters, with the heroes and all that, you know, I want the game itself to remain fairly intimate. So we have the story, like I said, uh, with the zombies. The, the premise is this, that, you know, we have these people living in villages and all of a sudden people disappear and people don't know what's going on. Then all of a sudden they come back but now they are zombies and there's this big problem that all of a sudden you know you're standing face to face with your mother and you have to kill her because she's a zombie and she's gonna you know kill you if you don't go first so you have this moral dilemma right out of the gates and obviously people want to do something about that and that is where the player comes in and says okay my father has just disappeared I want to go either rescue him or I want to kill the guy who is responsible for it so the game starts at the point where rumor has it all the zombies make their appearance first. And from there you venture into these mountains and all to find out what's going on and put an end to this. So you never you don't want it to be so large that the player forgets what they're doing? No, okay. not at all. I want to make sure there is a red line throughout that the player knows this is the premise, this is what we're trying to do, and this is your goal. Ultimately your goal is to destroy the Nethermancer. So, I mean, obviously that comes out of wanting the game to be more intimate, but is that also kind of a product of your time writing books, um, having that kind of stronger central narrative? I think so, yes, because I had this story in mind with twists and turns and all that and certain plot points that I definitely want to put in the game. And I think from that came the idea that I said, you know, instead of creating an open world, let's keep it more narrative or more, more, more closed so that we can better control what is going to happen. It doesn't mean that we fully control the experience. It's not like a linear game where you walk from point A, B, C, D, and then in the end, you know, you're there. Right. Uh, the player still has the freedom to do whatever he wants, and the story will offer enough variety that he can achieve goals in different ways or skip certain parts or venture down totally different paths and all that. But at the end of the day, the goal is set and, you know, you either rescue your father or it's part of the quest and kill the bad guy. Okay, cool. Um, so it, it sounds like, you know, it's got kind of a, a fairly strong linear um, progression to it with more stuff to the side that you can do if you want to or, or skip if you want to. Yeah. Um, so is it going to be like level based or is it is it all kind of one world? No, it's level-based, okay. but uh, levels have different sizes, different scopes, and all that. We have certain areas as part of the, the trek, let's call it. 
there are certain areas that the player has to traverse and that he can get into and all that. And each of these areas is sort of a level of its own. And then we have basically portals and stuff that take you from one area to the other. Okay, cool. Uh, now you've already mentioned that you know you're wanting the game to be um, you know turn-based and kind of a return to that side of you know classic RPGs. Is it first person, third person? Like, how's the the actual action going to kind of play out? It's a, first, it's a first person view. So when you walk through dungeons and all that, it's all a first person view. And also one of the decisions that I made is I want it to be step based. So you're not roaming completely freely in a 3D environment and all that. You really take forward one step at a time. Uh, for those who played something like Dungeon Master or the old Wizardry games or even the Rounds of Arcania games, they're familiar with that. And mm-hmm. Legend of Grimrock did it too more recently. So you take one step at a time. Uh, and for me, again, that was one of the things where I said, yes, we could create an open world where the player can go wherever he wants to. But for me... It, the risk is too big that he gets sidetracked with, sing- with things that are really irrelevant to the game. And it also means that we would have to create content that is totally irrelevant to the game, which means we would spend time on doing these things without really achieving much of anything. And that's why I decided, okay, I want a stepped approach. The player will take one step at a time through the world. What is it like trying to, to create combat for that sort of... Um setup because I, I don't know it seems it seems like it might be a little easier not necessarily from the technical side uh, but just from a conceptual side that you know if if everyone can move around like they normally would not in a, a grid base it seems like that would I don't know be a little bit easier to kind of plan out what, what is it like building combat for step-based gameplay well traditionally when you when you make turn-based combat strategy has always been one of the key reasons to do that because not only does it give you time to think about what you want to do but also because you can tactically arrange your your members and attack people very strategically that you say everybody go for that one mage because he's the strongest guy we have to take him out first before anybody else so you can make these kinds of decisions and uh we're still toying with the idea to maybe even take the camera out and to, uh, switch it into a third-person view for the combats. Mm. I mean, right now we're doing it as a first-person view, but yeah, the idea is on the table that we said, okay, let's take the camera back a little so that the player really gets an overview and can move his characters around maybe a little better for the combat. So we'll see. That is something we haven't completely decided yet. and. We'll have to play test certain things and see how they work and what the shortfall, shortcomings are of certain approaches. But the, the, the main thing for me is to have a proper turn-based combat that gives people the, the option to really make a plan and go for it. Okay. Um, now, one thing that we kind of haven't talked about um, is you... You worked on a, or started to work on a game previously, I think last year, uh, called Thorvala. Yeah. Um, and you guys, uh, you know, you went for the Kickstarter approach with that and ended up pulling the plug on it. Can you kind of tell us a little bit about uh, what happened with that game? Or, well, I guess first tell us what Thorvala was, um, and then we'll kind of get into, you know, what, what happened with it. Thorvala was a concept that was very reminiscent of the Realms of Arcania games. It was a big world, uh, a big epic adventure, essentially. 
And we try to put that together uh, as a as a as an isometric game. Mm. And it, it would have been a huge project and would have been a fun project because it would have used a lot of the Nordic elements that you could find in the Rams of Arcania games too. Uh, and we had some great people lined up to work with us for that. But unfortunately, the Kickstarter didn't go very far. And, you know, the reasons for that are manyfold. And I don't know. I, it's probably not the right time to or the right discussion <laughs> to have as to what went wrong with the Kickstarter. Sure, sure. Suffice it to say it didn't go anywhere. And it was a clear signal for me that I need to change my approach and the way I'm thinking about this. And that's what sort of shaped Deathfire as well. Because I went in and said, okay, obviously I can't get a huge epic world off the ground right now, so we need to focus it a little narrower. Mm -hmm. uh, and, you know, so it all sort of came together with Deathfire. And I said, you know, let's make something that we can, uh, that we can oversee a little better and that we can hopefully create with a smaller team more easily, more readily. Was there ever a time that you considered going back to uh, to Kickstarter with a more focused vision uh, with something like Deathfire? Potentially, yes. Okay. Cool. I wouldn't exclude right. it. I mean, uh, you know, the thing is, if we would do that, it would certainly be in a different fashion than we did last time. You mm -hmm. know, last time one of the big criticisms that we received was that it didn't seem prepared enough. You know, that people sort of didn't buy into the idea and we didn't have enough material to show. Mm. So if we were to make another Kickstarter, uh, it would be a lot more uh, refined this time with material, with screenshots, with all sorts of stuff. And, you know, we have all that because we've been working on the game for a couple of months already. Okay. But, but nothing has been decided completely in, on that front yet. Sure. Um, do you think you'll revisit Thorvala? I am not sure. I mean, the game as such is completely off the table because, like I say, I mean, I couldn't get funding for it, and sure. a game like that would need a lot of funding. It's a, it was a huge, it was a really big project and all that. And uh, as long as I don't see any way of, of finding that kind of money that is necessary to make that kind of game, it is off the table. However, I have to point out that I am happy to reuse certain elements that I created for Thorvala in Deathfire. So oh, absolutely. Of so course. It's like all the work and all the effort that we put into that behind the scenes is completely lost or just thrown out. I'm, I'm using some of the stuff in the new game. Not, not to go too far into the future, but, uh, but when Deathfire does very well, um, is there... Is this something that you're going to want to keep pushing as far as expanding that world out, or do you think you'll move on to something new? No, it is something I would very much like to establish sort of as a series. Okay. Um, Excellent. So, I mean, obviously you've worked uh, a ton with PC games, and uh, you worked with mobile games for a little while. Do you see, uh, you know, obviously this is way far into the future, but... Would you consider taking Deathfire um, somewhere else besides PC? Do you think it would be something that could work on a, you know, iPad or a Xbox or PlayStation or something like that? I mean, right now our focus is on the desktop platforms uh, because right. we're working with Unity. Um, we are coming out on PC and Mac and Linux pretty much on day one. Mm -hmm. uh, that is the main focus, and that's what we're developing the game for. Once it's done, uh, we will be thinking about mobile platforms, most likely the iPad and all that. However, 
uh, there are, of course, certain limitations and problems on the iPad with the controls. Mm -hmm. It is always nice, especially in a role-playing game where you often have a lot of controls, to have a keyboard and a mouse. And to simulate that on an iPad, I am not sure how we will end up doing it. But, you know, considering we'll have to look at the market at the time. There was a time, you know, not too long ago where I thought, okay, yeah, there's riches to be made in the iPad market, and <laughs> there aren't, you know. And by the time we're done with Deathfire, I will have to take a look at that market. And if there's no way to make money on it, I will not, you know, green light any mobile ports for it. Because it's just, you know, not carrying itself. Mm -hmm. But if there is the possibility, and if the game is, you know, popular and, and, and successful enough, it's certainly something I would consider, yeah or whatever other platforms will be out by then. I mean, that's always one of the things that I liked to do and that I sort of pride myself in that I've always been working on the bleeding edge of technology, whether it's in the ebook market, whether it's in the mobile space and all that, you know. I, I mean, I've been making mobile games by the time people didn't even know it's possible, you know. Mm -hmm. I was making computer games when most people would just look at me and say, you're doing what, you know. <laughs> Like, Comp you who? Yeah, it's like, I mean, it's 1983, in 1983, people would ask me, so what do you do for a living? And I was like, I am making computer games. And they're like, can you even make a living at that? I was like, hell yeah, you know. <laughs> it's obviously working. It's like, but, apparently. Uh, yeah, it's, it's always that kind of thing, you know, that I like to work in areas that are a little off the beaten path. And, you know, like I say, we'll see what is around by the time we're finished with Deathfire and maybe give it a go. All right. Well, uh, now it's time to turn it back over to Brian, where he can ask his world famous questionnaire. Oh, I don't want to go world famous, but yeah, we do like to. I, we kind of like to take these uh, the the end of uh, the interviews and kind of go a little bit more personal with them. Uh, kind of just like inside the actor's studio, where I got the idea from. Mm -hmm. um, just ask a series of questions. Just kind of get it to to get a better feeling about about you and, and gaming in general. Um, I call it. Just kind of just like Deathfire, how that name is kind of in the air. This is actually the first time I'm deb debuting the name of it, so I call it the Tyler Interrogation. It <laughs> sounds kind of evil, and based uh, off of uh, the questions that we've asked before, it actually is kind of evil. So they're having, not hard, but they will make you think. Right. It was uh, supposed to be the lightning round, but it quickly yeah. became the molasses round, so we uh, have to change it. All right. Let's all right. Hear so it. First question: um, What's the what's your favorite thing about old school games that's been lost in the new school? Um, the sense of adventure. And I probably have to explain that a little more. Please. Because, I mean, even if you play today modern role-playing games, you have adventure, obviously. If you play Skyrim or so, yes, you're exploring and all that. But... I feel all, all the time when I play these games, I feel like I'm either strung along so that I can't even lose, or I feel like I'm uh, completely clueless, that I'm just wandering around like a fool, not even knowing what I'm supposed to do, where I'm supposed to be, and how I'm possibly going to get there. And to me, role-playing game has always been very focused. There's an problem, there's a story, there's something, you know, some magical thing that, that attracts me, uh, as a, you know, from a storytelling standpoint, something that attracts me and I want to get into it and I want to get close to it and I want to solve it, I want to unravel it. And, you know, this immediate puzzling and unriddling of things, that is what I am sort of missing. 
And that is, again, what I'm trying to bring back with Deathfire. Absolutely. All right, now we're going we're gonna to flip the script a little bit on this. Um, what is the thing you are glad no longer exists in new school gaming from the old school? Hooey. Wow. <laughs> Something that... If, little... if there's anything, if there's okay. there's anything you can think of that, that, that you guys did back in the day, because we can yeah. say that now because it's been yeah. 30 years, that, uh, that just wouldn't ha- happen now. <laughs> Disc swapping. That's the thing. <laughs> no, seriously, though. Um, Unfortunately, that's not quite gone yet. Hopefully, it'll yeah. be gone with the next generation of consoles. Right. But currently, uh, we still have to do that. <laughs> uh, the thing... Oh, boy. You know, I really would not know how to answer that. I mean, many of the limitations, you know, that are no longer there, that help, make, help us make better games today are a blessing. And, you know, when we made things like the Rams of Arcania games, there were many limitations, you know, whether we had to struggle with soundboards or video cards and video standards and uh, how many discs you can have in the final game, all these sorts of things that you always had to juggle in the air and pull together. I'm glad all that is gone, that we can really focus on making the game we want to make without having to limit ourselves because of whatever restraints there are. Uh, The same goes for platforms you know we're working with unity and i feel that unity really enables me as a game designer and as a game developer because i don't have to develop the core technology anymore Uh, i can really focus on making the game and that is a huge boon for me as much as i love developing technology it's just taking so much time and if you're working with a small team and you want to make a game if half the time you're spending is really uh, spend creating and debugging technology it you know it sort of takes the fun out of it oftentimes absolutely that's 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 creative time lost yeah okay next question um what is your least favorite video game trope and by trope we mean stuff like uh amnesia uh you know your character being all powerful at the beginning and then losing power um what's red barrels that explode (laughs) barrels you like barrels? Yeah. Floating <laughs> barrels and all that. Uh, we could we could do with that a lot. We could the world could be a, a lot better with less red barrels. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah, but you know, in terms of role playing, I think uh, the lone hero, I think, is one of the tropes that I think has been abused a little. Mm-hmm. I think. Uh, In many ways, I think it's a little unrealistic to really think you have this one guy who can completely change the world without anybody else and all that. And, ah, yeah, it seems a little far-fetched. It seems a little too Hollywoody for me. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I think it's a group effort. Like making games, you know, when when you do stuff, when you're creative, it's always a group effort. You're always depending on the people around you, no matter what you do in life. And I think saving the world would be no different. Absolutely. Um, after so long in this business, is there still something that surprises you about the process, about the craft? The craft of making games? Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I'm fascinated by the kind of research that is done these days academically into certain areas that we just created uh you know, flying by the seat of our pants in the past. 
uh, as a good example, if you take something like dialogue systems, you know, when we created dialogue systems back in the days, you know, we didn't think much of it. We just said, okay, what do we need to do? Let's do it, you know, and you just create something. Today, there has been research done on the subject of dialogue systems in games and specifically in role-playing games, advantages, disadvantages, strategies, how this, how you could do that and all that. I find stuff like that absolutely fascinating. And while I was working on plans for the Deathfire dialogue system, I was going through a lot of academia to really uh, figure out or find out what the research has been doing in that end. And there were some really surprising insights in there that I had not thought of. And I'm reading the stuff and I was like, hey, that's a cool idea. I've never thought of it that way. Maybe I should take that to heart and implement it or find a way to, to go in that direction. That's awesome. It, it's, mm -hmm. it's kind of weird how, how that's kind of become like uh, the, the stuff that you used to do, you know, fly by night, see to your pants, just, just out of necessity has you kind know, of become like a, a thinking man's game. I tell you, one of the weirdest things for me personally is to see and observe how the industry has changed. When we started making games on our little bread boxes in the early 80s, you know, we were just hacking away. You know, we we're just making stuff up as we were going and we invented stuff and we were creating technology without even the, the, the most basic knowledge about it. We just made it, you know, because it worked and because we needed tricks to make stuff work. To see today how much of the stuff that we've been doing has been used as a foundation for really serious research is amazing to me. And, you know, to see how, how much stuff we actually got right and how much stuff we actually got wrong and to see how people pick that apart and say, you know, this is the reason why they did it. But if they had had the processing power we have today, they would probably make it differently. And, you know, all this 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 research is, is absolutely fascinating for me. And I, I keep wondering about that all the time. At the same time, I find it really interesting to see that people think it is important enough and relevant enough that it actually deserves research. Because we're not talking about just some guy blogging about it. We're talking about universities having actual white papers on some of these subjects. And to be uh, having been part of this first group of people who sort of established the gaming industry, to me that is just mind-boggling in a sense. You know, mind-blowing, I should say. Absolutely. Oh, that, it just said, yeah, I, I don't even know how to approach that. <laughs> <laughs> um, obviously, you did it with writing, but if, uh, if you could try any other profession, if you were given the chance to do anything else, is there anything you'd like to attempt? Um, music. I've been a musician for most of my life, and I don't know if you're aware of that, but I also wrote the music for a couple of the games that we did. And nope. that is was that. Not aware. Is, yeah, that you weren't aware of that. No, nope. no. Then you should listen to Shadows Over Riva, the soundtrack, for example. All so, right. because I did a lot of work in that area as well, and uh, for the longest time, I've been thinking about seriously pursuing a professional career in music. Uh, that was until games made more game, more money, and I decided, okay, maybe I should go down that path. <laughs> okay. <laughs> very practical from beginning to end That's yeah, <laughs> keep yourself somehow you know it was really a practical decision at the time i was like okay should i chase that dream of becoming a rock star one day or should i take that you know ten thousand dollar check from that publisher and make another game i was like well let me take that check instead you know? <laughs> i do i do like to eat you know it's yeah like... <laughs> and especially because you know i enjoy doing both so much it's not like i i gave up music 
or that I really abandoned one thing for the other. It was like, you know, hey, I have two things I really love doing and I'm actually being paid for it. It's like, you know, it's a no-brainer. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I, I, people would adore to be in that position. Yeah, I I was happy. <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely. And it's turned out well, so... <laughs> yeah. That is um, just because because also that is one of the most incredible feelings that I had in my entire career. That you know there were two absolute highlights that you have as a game developer. The first one was when I got my first check for a game that I developed. You know, from a publisher, they issued me a check and it came in the mail and I opened it. And it's like, oh my god, they really paid for this. You know, <laughs> I think that I did my leisure time. Uh, that was, a, a, you know, you can't explain it. It's it's just one of those moments. And the other moment was going in a store, seeing my game on the shelf, watching somebody pick it up, walk to the cash register, and paying for it. That is a moment I will never forget. That's great. Yeah. Um, uh, final question. Um, when, we, when we get to the end of life and uh, we, we approach the gates of the Mushroom Kingdom mm-hmm. and toad the gatekeepers there with the book of all of everything that we've done, um, what do you want him to say to you? You did well. <laughs> <laughs> Good on you. <laughs> you know, my ideal has always been when I was making games and all that. I'm obviously I'm making games that I enjoy. You know, I make the games that I would love to play, and I think it shows in the kinds of games that I've been doing in the past. So for me, I'm really happy and I feel blessed that people really enjoy the games that I've been making in the past. And again, it's one of those weird things. I talk to people who are to this date playing games that I made 20 years ago. And, you know, just to have created something that is so fulfilling to other people is, you know, more than I could ever have asked for. And I'm incredibly thankful for that. Absolutely, man. I mean, I have to say that that, uh, there's a lot of those games that you worked on that are at the very top of those best story ever charts. Glad to hear with, that. With, with probably Planescape being, uh, you know, overall voted one of the one of the best, like almost all the time. Yeah. So I mean, you 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 know, no matter what, you're good. <laughs> Thank you. Yeah. yeah. Well, that's it. Uh, interrogation's over. You did well. You didn't give up anything. Uh, anything too secretive. So you don't have to try harder next time. But uh, no, I'm. Thank I'm, you very I'm, much. <laughs> <laughs> I'm happy to talk about stuff. So if there are questions and all that, I mean, just bring them on. Mm-hmm. I'm always there. I'm all, all, my door is always open, as they say. That's uh, it's good to know. Uh, before we head out, if you could just tell us um, when we can find out more information about Deathfire, when we can actually find out the the real title mm-hmm. uh, of Deathfire, and uh, when maybe people can at some point get their hands on it. Well, the, the reveal for the title will be next week, most likely next Monday. Okay. So stop over by my blog. It's guidohenkel.com, and we'll have information up there. Uh, you can also follow me on Twitter. It's Again, it's Guido Henkel, uh, where I usually tweet about what I'm working on and the little hiccups that I'm having and all sorts of th- stuff. And as for the game itself, we're, right now we're shooting for a 2014 release, which will be late 2014. And by that time, hopefully, everybody will be able to take a look and play the game. Sounds good. 
All right, well, thank you for joining us today, Guido. I uh, really enjoyed our talk, and I hope everything just goes famously with Deathfire, or, you know, whatever it's going to be called. <laughs> thank you so much for having me. No, thank awesome. you, sir. It was a pleasure. Right. See you later.